The Sons of Liberty is a politically neutral organization. We believe that the Judeo-Christian ethic has provided the principles upon which this nation was founded. It is our belief that these principles provide not only the foundation and framework for American government and society, but are also essential to the maintenance of a fair and just society. All program content is based on a Christian biblical worldview. One of you said to me recently, we shouldn't rock the boat. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you that I am a boat rock. Good morning, America. Welcome, Christians, conservatives, constitutionalists, libertarians, liberals, communists, Islamists, LGBTQ, RSTV, WXYZ people, and anybody else that may have missed to the Sons of Liberty radio show here on Red State Talk Radio. I'm your host, Tim Brown, coming to you live from the U.S. occupied state of South Carolina. I'm the editor at Sons of Liberty Media.com. For our Muslim friends, I'm the infidel that I'll warn you about. I hold to the book, the Bible, as the authoritative word of God. Glad that you guys have joined us this morning. If you'd like to check us out online, please do so. Sons of Liberty Radio.com. And also sonsoflibertymedia.com. If you want to watch the video portion of the show, you can do that. Um, that's right. You can see the face that's made for radio right there on sonsoflibertymedia.com. Just scroll down right there on the right, and the show should be going. You can enlarge that and check us out there. You can also catch that live video feed on Twitter, FPPTM on Twitter. My Periscope account is Setting Brush Fires. Our Facebook page is Bradley Dean SOL. YouTube channel is B Dean Sons of Liberty. We're also on beforeitsnews.com every weekday morning, 6 a.m. Saturdays at 8 a.m., and then Bradley's on in the afternoon, 3 p.m., Monday through Saturday. You can also catch us on dlive.tv at The Sons of Liberty. And then if you're branching out into other social media outlets, you can do that. Spreely Gab, MeWe Minds, and USA.life at Sons of Liberty and Sons of Liberty Media. Uh, we won't be taking phone calls today because we are pre-recording this show, and I'd like to take time just to come in and to introduce you to our guest, uh, which for some of you, you've been learning about him. Some of you, you know about him for a long time. And uh, that is Dr. Thomas J. DiLorenzo. He's the author of The Real Lincoln and How Capitalism Saved America. He's a professor of economics at Loyola, Loyola College in Maryland, a senior fellow at the Ludwig von Mises Institute. And he's written for the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, The Washington Post. We won't hold that against you. <laughs> and Reader's Digest, Barron's, and many other publications. And uh, we're happy to have him with us today. He's also got a new book out, just came out last week, and that is The Problem with Lincoln, The False Virtue of Abraham Lincoln. And I was telling him just prior to the show here that we've had so many people that have uh, come to understand that Abraham Lincoln was not the great president that we're told uh, that he was, but rather that he was a tyrant and uh, one who came and usurped the Constitution greatly. So with that said, welcome to the Sons of Liberty, Dr. DiLorenzo. Pleased to be with you today, Tim. Yeah, I appreciate you making time for us today as well. And um, one of the things that I did last week, I came across a video of yours. Uh, this was done back in, Houston, back in Houston, I think it was 2015, uh, why the Constitution had to be destroyed. And one of the interesting things that people don't know about our history is how a, a lot of the, the, um, the Constitution was constructed 
uh, in an upper room, closed off from media, closed off from everybody. There were usurpations <clears throat> of even what they were commanded to do. And so I thought we would, or what they were um, authorized to do. And so what I thought we would do is we'd start off today with a little bit of that history. For those who don't know it, I don't know if you've written a specific book, but I showed I showed you it before. We did this at Nicene Council when I was there. It's called Conspiracy in Philadelphia. This is by Dr. Gary North. And it's this was an entire chapter in his book, Political Polytheism, which you can get for free. Um, and this is like five, 600 pages of this. And it deals with a lot of this. But can you give people a little bit of history for that? And let's let's move through our history and see where we are today as far as what all that brought about. Uh, well, the Constitutional Convention. OK, well, um, uh, this is sort of a, I'll promote another one of my books called Hamilton's Curse about uh, Alexander Hamilton. It's a critique of Ham Alexander Hamilton. There's a book called Hamilton's Blessing. Uh, that I, that my book is sort of a, a counter to that, but anyway, the uh, you know Alexander Hamilton was the the biggest promoter of a cons a constitutional convention to replace the Articles of Confederation, which were our which was our first constitution, and the Articles of Confederation did not give the federal government taxing power. That's called the good old days, and so uh, that had to be changed. That had to be changed, and so Hamilton and the and his party, the Federalist Party, was dominated and financed by the, the big business interests of uh, New York, Philadelphia, Boston, uh, you know, the Eastern Seaboard. And Hamilton was their man. He was their, their, their representative at the Constitutional Convention. So he got his Constitutional Convention. And, of course, Hamilton was one of the authors of the Federalist Papers, which was made what's called the Nationalist Case for the Constitution not the Jeffersonian states' rights, uh, uh, true federalism case, but the nationalist case for the Constitution. And uh, you know, a lot of people who have gone to school and learned anything about the Constitution know about that. So what did Hamilton want? It, it, what he wanted was a permanent president, sounds like a king, doesn't it, who would appoint all the governors, and the governors could veto any state government legislation that they did not approve of. So it was basically the British system without the British, uh, and so and so the uh, of course the Jeffersonians and, and and a lot of other people opposed that. They said we just fought a revolution against that kind of system. Why would me? Why would we want to have it here? And uh, when, I, when I sometimes when I make public speeches about this, I, I, I refer to this old movie, History of the World, Part Two, where Mel Brooks plays the King of France, and his laugh line in the movie is. It's good to be the king. He keeps, someone comes in and puts a big pile of gold bricks next to the king. And he says, he looks into the camera and says, it's good to be the king. Well, that, that seems to me is, was the attitude of Alexander Hamilton and the Federalist Party, that this system of a highly centralized government run by basically a king called a permanent president uh, is a rotten system if you're on the tax paying end. But if you're on the tax collecting end, it's good to be the king. You get all the money and the power, and, and, and you know, you're king of the world. And that, that's what they wanted. And also, there was always an economic agenda behind it. You know, one of the reasons they wanted a powerful, highly centralized government was to force upon the population protectionist tariffs, for one thing. They would protect uh, the, you know, the sort of the early days of manufacturing, which was basically uh, shops, you know, we didn't have electricity and, you know, mass production, but manufacturing from competition from abroad. 
So the, the, the woolen coat manufacturers, the shoemakers, the farm tool manufacturers of New England, for example, they did not want competition from Europe. And so high tariffs on products like that coming in from Europe was what they wanted. They also wanted government subsidies for, the, for corporations, uh, today what we would call corporate welfare. And they also wanted a national bank. Uh, the, the, uh, the Bank of North America was the, actually the first national bank, and it inflated the, its currency so much that within one year, no one could no one could trust the currency. They thought it was just counterfeit uh, funny money, and it went out of business. It was privatized, and so uh, the same group, uh, the same cabal of uh, business people from uh, Philadelphia, New York, and Boston. Uh, went to work trying to resurrect a national bank, and that was Hamilton's job. That was, and he eventually did succeed at that. You know, after the Constitution was uh, was ratified, and so uh, or before the Constitution was ratified, I mean, he, we did get a, a national bank, and so uh, and so that's what what happened with Hamilton they, when he appeared at the Constitutional Convention, and they rejected a permanent president. He he stormed out of there. And he eventually denounced the Constitution that was ratified as, uh, in his words, a frail and useless fabric because it did not allow government to be big enough. He wanted government to be to be uh, to create an empire that would rival the British Empire and the Spanish Empire. Uh, whereas his nemesis Thomas Jefferson uh, sort of mocked him by saying, "Well, I'm for empire, but I'm for an empire of liberty." Now, I don't want an empire that will invade Canada and invade and start another war with England. I, you know, I want an empire of liberty, he, he said. And so, uh, and so we, Hamilton didn't get his way, but he would spend the rest of his life trying to undermine the limits on government created by the Constitution. It was Hamilton, for example, who invented the idea of implied powers of the Constitution. Uh, and he was in a, a George Washington asked him and, uh, and Hamilton to write, uh, Hamilton and Jefferson to write their opinions of the constitutionality of a national bank run by politicians. Jefferson said, basically, this was debated during the Constitutional Convention. They rejected it. It's not one of the delegated powers delegated by the states to the federal government. Therefore, it's unconstitutional to have a, a national bank. Hamilton came back and said, well, you need to read between the lines. Those aren't his exact words, but that was the gist of his argument. He said there are implied powers of the Constitution. And Jefferson's response to that was, in essence, to say, I've read between the lines and all I see is blank space. So they went back and forth on that. But in the end, George Washington signed off on a law. The Federalists had the votes to, uh, to give us the first bank of the United States. And so that was the first victory that uh, the Nationalists had in creating this sort of British uh, mercantilist system of big government for the benefit of big business. That's what they wanted and they, and they started to get it when they got the first bank. But that bank quickly, quickly created price inflation and boom and bust cycles and it corrupted politics. It, it used money from the bank to finance the political careers of the nationalists at the expense of the Jeffersonians so Congress did not refund the bank after its 20-year charter ran out. Now, maybe I'll stop there for now. Yeah, let, let me let me ask something there. Uh, some people are probably going, they, they may be going, okay, well, if you don't have a bank, how do we make the money? Because 
you know, currently we're, we've got this issue where you go in the stores and they go, well, you know, because of a shortage of coins, you know, from the Federal Reserve. And yeah, well, you know, I can just see some people going, well, where does the money come from? And uh, I've done a whole show on constitutional money. Uh, it talks about gold and silver is to be used to pay debts and, and this kind of thing, not these uh, the, the, the monopoly money we have. So how how does that work into what's going on here? Well, we have banks, and that's what Jefferson said. He said, well, we have banks. Uh, uh, Hamilton was saying, well, we need a government bank to to deposit treasury receipts, you know, taxes. And and Jefferson always smelled a rat. You don't need to have a bank under the control of politicians. You can deposit the treasury receipts in any bank. We have banks. And so, yeah, we have banks. And, of course, the the, the origins of banking was – it started with uh, uh, warehousing, people who had warehouses, like the local blacksmith would have a warehouse where he kept his, all his, uh, the goods, the things that he was working on. And, and eventually that turned into a bank because um, people would come and say, well, you have a very, you have a, a very sturdy building here. It's, it's well locked, well guarded. Uh, it'd be a good place to, to hold my money. And so people would bring their gold and silver to the, uh, to this person, and he would give them a receipt for the gold and silver, redeemable, uh, you know, at any time for your gold and silver. And for, for a small fee, I will store your money and guard it and so forth. And that's how banking got started. And that's how paper money got started, because as receipts for deposits of gold and silver. And that eventually led to a, a competitive system of banking in America, where we had competing banks that would issue paper currency but backed in varying degrees by, by gold and silver. For example, the, the word Dixie, you know, you're in South Carolina, Tim, aren't you, uh, right now? The word Dixie, you know, referring to South, uh, the word Dix, D-I-X, is 10 in French. And there was a bank in New Orleans that, that issued a very reliable currency that was backed up by close to 100% gold reserves. And it was so stable and reliable and trustworthy the people in Minnesota even use this, the Dix, as, as their currency. And so that's where the word, the land of Dixie comes from. It was actually a land of this, this currency because it was backed by gold. Now, other banks that uh, only had maybe held, say, 10% in reserve, uh, if there was a run on that bank, uh, you know, once the 10% was gone, the people that the next person in line would find out his gold was no longer there, well, they quickly went out of business. And no one would trust them. And, and it was also true, and I'm talking 19th century here. And in the 19th century, there were lots of publications in America that would rank these banks on their reliability in terms of how good a job they did in backing their currency with gold and silver. And so, so you as an ordinary customer would not have to be uh, playing in the dark here. You could gain information on who's reliable, and people did. And so, so yeah, so that's where you, that's where the money uh, uh, came from. We had, we had banks. We didn't need a, a bank run by politicians. You know, isn't that among the worst ideas in the world, a bank run by politicians? No, I, in fact, the reason it's, uh, if people don't believe that, all you have to do is look at what's going on right now. And you see that uh, when, when this whole thing of a central <clears throat> bank opens up, uh, it fleeces the people, it devalues the money that's, that's there and uh, you see the manipulation of gold and silver even now when, uh, what was it, a couple of years, no, it's been more than a couple of years ago, several years ago, when gold and silver both were making some pretty 
uh, big strides in the market, the manipulation of the market comes around that pushes it back down. And uh, they, I, the thing is, is, and this is eventually where I want to get with some things. Um, eventually that's going to come out and they're not going to be able to do it anymore. I mean, because the, the dollar isn't going to have any value at all. I mean, it, it's pretty much there now uh, from the course of 1913 when uh, the central banks came in. By the way, we're going to have G. Edward Griffin come on and, and talk a little bit about that to, to bring us just in the completely economic uh, realm of that. I mean, you, you can't even find when I was a kid, I'm 51. When I was a kid, even up in my teen years and stuff, you could still find one and two cent bubble gum. And not that that's necessarily good for you, but, but you could find that in the store. I don't think you can find that anymore. Oh, yeah. yeah there's, a, there's, a, there's a great little book. You could probably still find it online. It's called Whatever Happened to Penny Candy is the, is the name of the book. It's a great book. I used to give it away to uh, friends I knew had small children who were maybe eight, nine, ten years old. And then they wanted them to learn a little bit something about money and economics. Uh, what, whatever happened to Penny Candy? And uh, I haven't seen a copy of it in a long, long time. But it's but it's about this. And it's, it's very readable. But uh, yeah, I remember those days too. I'm, I'm I'm a little older than you, so I can remember that. But you know what the Fed is doing now. You know you know I was an economics professor for forty years, and uh, and my students would always catch on immediately when I said, you know, if you if you set up a printer in your basement and you printed out $100 bills and you got caught, you'd go to prison for a very long time counterfeiting. But that's exactly what the Fed does. Uh, and if, and that's why I would tell them, but you're okay as long as you call it monetary policy. Don't call it counterfeiting. Tell people you're in the business of monetary policy. Then it's okay. And so, so it's typical. A lot of things the government does, if an individual does it, it's a crime. If the government does it, they call it something else. You know, they, they, if, if it's theft, it's theft. You're a thief. But if you call it taxation, well, that's okay. It's taxation. And so, and it's the same thing with monetary policy. And, you know, the, the thing is now, you know, what, the gov- what the government is doing now with the Fed, the, the biggest explosion in the money supply in my lifetime in response to the government shutting down most of the economy over this virus is for years they've been paying banks to hold on to extra reserves and not lend out so much money to ignite inflation. And so the banks can sit back and they get this money given to them by the Fed and they can earn a couple of percentage points interest risk-free. And so they do it. If you're talking billions of dollars, two uh, or 3% will make you some money and, uh, and it's risk-free, it's guaranteed. And so why, why jump into the stock market or you know, take on all the risk? Maybe you do some of that. And that's how the Fed is playing the game now to avoid hyperinflation. But that's not going to go on forever. And no one can predict when they will stop doing this. But whenever they stop doing this, then the banks have all these reserves that they want to lend out. Uh, that's when the hyperinflation uh, will come. And, and inflation, the price inflation is already... Uh, it's kind of misleading because, you know, we, we already see price inflation in some markets. The stock market is in a bubble. The higher education market is in a bubble. Uh, the automobile market is in a bubble. People are taking out eight-year loans on, on to buy a modest, mid-sized sedan nowadays. It, it's, it, you know, low, very low rates of interest. So that's so we have we already have these bubbles, and they will burst like the real estate bubble burst in, uh, in 2008. But um, I'm not a fortune teller, so I can't tell you exactly when. I wish I could. 
No, I, it, you and I both would probably make a lot of money if we could do that, but, uh, we, but we can't. Mm-hmm. All right. So, so this is, we kind of jumped ahead a little bit and that's my fault, but you're talking about Hamilton and what he was trying to do. You talked about what Jefferson said. No, you know, we, we've got that covered. What transpired between, um, oh, I don't know, 1789 or so and the time that Lincoln is about to come on the scene? Because I know I know money and commerce and things like that were really the things that, that historians don't want to tell us were the real problems between the North and the South, so to speak. And one of your uh, fortes here is, is on Lincoln. Um, tell us what went on in those years leading up to Lincoln and really what the crux of the matter was that got him to be such a tyrant that he would invade his, his own country. Yeah, I've written several books about this. Uh, see if I can explain my three books on this in five minutes or less. Uh, Take well, as much time as you need. Yeah, after the first Bank of the United States was uh, defunded by the, by the U.S. Congress, the War of 1812 came, and they used that as an excuse to bring it back and they brought back what was called the Second Bank of the United States. This was in the year 1817, and they used it to print money to uh, to finance the debt that it accumulated for the War of 1812. And that bank did the same thing the First Bank of the United States did. It created price inflation and boom and bust cycles, and so there was a big confrontation with Andrew Jackson in the, the late 1830s, and Andrew Jackson vetoed the rechartering of the Second Bank of the United States and it went out of business by the early 1840s. It was one of, the, one of the great moments in American political history for which Andrew Jackson should be praised to the treetops. Not for every single thing he did in his entire life, but for that, yeah, it was heroic and, and principled, and, and he did a great thing. And in, the, in terms of Abraham Lincoln, his whole political career, he got into politics in 1832, or right in the middle of when this was happening, and his whole political career, no one, he was a Whig. The Whig Party uh, sort of was the descendants of the Federalists. And the Whig Party lasted basically from 1832 to 1854, uh, so around there, when it became the Republican Party, it became the party of Lincoln. But Lincoln was a Whig all during those years. And no, no member of the Whig Party was a bigger proponent of, uh, of a bringing back a national bank than Abraham Lincoln. And also, Lincoln was a hyper-protectionist. Uh, he, he, got, he got the nomination, uh, the Republican nomination. The key to winning the nomination was the Pennsylvania delegation and the New York delegation at the time. And he sent a private emissary to Pennsylvania with all of his old speeches in a, in a uh, briefcase uh, advocating higher protectionist tariffs. Because he wanted to prove to them, I'm your man. You let me, we're gonna we're gonna double, triple, quadruple the tariff rate on imports, you know, taxes, and, and it worked. He he got the nomination, so he owed he owed the protectionists everything. And then, in his first inaugural address, if you want me to talk about Lincoln? Uh, I call Lincoln's first inaugural address his "Slavery Forever" speech, because he starts out saying, "I have no intention in doing anything about slavery." Uh, all of my past speeches uh, will will document this. I support the Republican platform, which says uh, we, we we don't intend to disturb the domestic institutions of the state, uh, which by which they meant slavery. And he actually repeated that part of the Republican platform in his first inaugural address. And then at the end of the speech, 
He supported a constitutional amendment that would have enshrined slavery in the Constitution explicitly because it was never explicitly protected in writing in the Constitution. It was called the Corwin Amendment after a, a, a Ohio congressman uh, named Thomas Corwin. And it would have prohibited the federal government from ever interfering in Southern slavery. And Lincoln endorsed that in his first inaugural address. But when it came to taxes, he said this, he says, it's my duty to collect the duties and imposts, that's tariffs. But beyond that, there will be no invasion of any state. So he literally threatened invasion. He also used the word bloodshed to describe what would happen to any state that failed to collect the tariff tax in his first inaugural address. And that tax rate, by the way, had been more than doubled two days earlier. The average tax rate on imports was 15%, 1.5. And the two days before Lincoln was inaugurated, President, excuse me, President Buchanan, his predecessor, uh, signed off from Pennsylvania, signed off on the, the Morrill Tariff, M-O-R-R-I-L-L, named after a steel manufacturer from Vermont, Justin Morrill, congressman. And it increased the tariff, the average tariff rate from 15 to 32%, more than double. So the rate, and, and at the time, there was no income tax. Uh, the government got about 90% or more of its all of its revenue from tariffs on imports. So the federal rate of taxation was more than doubled two days earlier. And then uh, uh, Lincoln comes along and throws down the gauntlet and threatens war over tariff collection while bending over backwards to defend Southern slavery. Dr. Let me, let, me, let me interject something there. Hold, hold your place there uh, for what he's doing. Let me interject something because some people are probably going, well, wait a minute. I thought the Republicans wanted to end slavery. I thought this is, you know, Abraham Lincoln was this, that, and the other. And they're, they're a little lost in all this. And they're like, this is not the history that I was indoctrinated with mm -hmm. in public school. Um, and this idea that, uh, um, you know, it was the, the bad South. They just wanted to keep all these slaves, this, that, and the other. But the interesting thing in all of it is there were never any Southern slave ships. Those were all from the North. And many, we know from history, and I'm, look, I'm not sitting here trying to justify, but many, we know from history that there were many Southerners who took in some of these slaves because they knew they were going to get worked if they let them go down into South America. They were going to get worked to death. And many of them had within their, their thinking to give some of these people the gospel. And, um, and they actually, many of them became a part of the family, as it were. Not all of them. There were some, there were some bad masters there, no doubt about it. But I, I can just hear people, their wheels turning, going, wait a minute, we're even told today that the Republican Party has started to free the slaves. And Abraham Lincoln was on board with that. And you're saying, well, he's on board with a platform party that says we're not going to do any of this stuff here. In fact, he's pushing uh, to make slavery permanent. And I will often say it's the war of northern aggression. I'm a good old southern boy. Um, but at the same time, it, you know, we, we've come up with a new term, the, the war to enslave the states. And uh, he really, instead of freeing slaves, he made pretty much everybody a slave to the government. And uh, and I appreciate you touching on the income tax because people often say, well, how can we fund government? Well, the first thing is we can't be spending beyond the constitutional um, boundaries that we put, that put there, that our founding fathers put there. And the second thing is this idea of tariffs. To me, it's more of a biblical approach because you're not taxing your countrymen or you're not putting usury on your countrymen. You're putting it on everybody else who's outside of that, even though I realize that eventually that kind of comes back on us. Can, can you tap into that a little more before you go into more with Lincoln there? 
on the tariff? Yes. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. You know, we the uh, the income tax did not come in in until the year of 1913. So uh, until then, we funded the constitutional functions of government and so, and a lot of unconstitutional functions of government, primarily with tariffs on imports and a few excise taxes and land sales. The, go- the government claimed to own all the land, you know, west, of, you know, west of the Ohio River, and uh, and it sold off some of that land. It gave away a lot with uh, the Homestead Act, but it also sold some. But then, but the primary form of revenue was tariffs, and of course it, it does come. It does mean that we're going to pay because if uh, if I'm buying uh, farm tools from a guy in uh, Pennsylvania, and uh, there are farm tools also being imported from England, and you put a fifty percent tax on the English farm tools, well then the guy from Pennsylvania can increase the price of his farm tools by twenty five percent and still underprice his competitor from England. So either way, the price that you're paying for your farm tools is going up. And that's one of the things Southerners have been claiming, complaining about for 30 years. They almost seceded in South Carolina in the eight, late 1820s when uh, Congress passed something that Southerners called the Tariff of Abominations, 1828, that increased the average tariff rate from 10 to 12% to 48%. And so, and so all of a sudden, what Southerners saw was, this is 1828, was the price of uh, clothing, shoes, farm tools were all going up. And at the same time, Southerners were selling about three-fourths, 75% of everything, all the tobacco, cotton in Europe. They were exporting it to Europe. All of a sudden, they realized that if the Europeans can't sell us these things and make money, whether no matter what it is, farm tools, clothing, whatever, they don't have money for Southern cotton. They're not going to have as much money for Southern tobacco or, or Southern rice. And so it was a double whammy. You, the Southerners are paying more for everything they were buying that was manufactured, and their farm business was, was drying up because of the high tariffs. Uh, and, same, and that was, they were being plundered. And so they began complaining about that in the 1820s, and they forced Andrew Jackson to back down. They, South Carolina, by the way, passed a nullification law to nullify the tariff abominations. And in and and, and this law, this is in um, 1832, it gave the governor of South Carolina $160,000 to buy firearms with which to fend off federal tax collectors. So they were serious about uh, uh, evading this tax. And, and, and they forced uh, President Andrew Jackson uh, and the rest of the government to back down. So what they did was they had a compromised lower tariff that over the next 10 years would get rid of that 48% average rate. Because on some things, if the average was 48, I think on woolen blankets, when I did research on this, it was over 100%. And so, uh, and so the Southerners thought they were being plundered and ripped off, which they were. And so when Lincoln comes around, he's the champion of repeating this. He's the champion of repeating the, the plundering of the South with tariffs, which is why in my new book, The Problem with Lincoln, I include in appendices the, the full text of Jefferson Davis's first inaugural address and the full text of Abraham Lincoln's first inaugural address. And Lincoln's, as I just said, he promises to protect slavery, but it threatens war over tariffs. And Jefferson Davis says, and we, we, we are a trading people. We trade around the world. 
and we're willing to, uh, to arm ourselves and defend ourselves against anybody who wants to threaten our freedom to trade with the rest of the world. That's a paraphrase, but it's pretty close to what Jefferson Davis said in his first inaugural address. So both of these men understood that the impending war, uh, if there was to be a war, it would be over tax collection. And, uh, and, and they were right. Well, and we see now, uh, you know, we read about what the Boston Tea Party, uh, what was that? I mean, it was just a very small amount of taxes that were that were added on the tea. Yeah. And here, here was this sort of revolt, if you will, over it. Uh, we see today, I mean, wh- what are the, what is the, I don't even pay attention to the tax rate, uh, uh, the income tax rate, much less all of the stuff uh, when you get a service, for instance, your your telephone or something like this. All of these taxes, some of them they call fees and they call this, that, and the other, but they're really a tax and, and they get thrown on there. And in here, we're, we're only getting a, a portion of that in, uh, of, of what's going on there. I mean, the, you're talking about these guys are jacking stuff up 50% uh, in taxes or 100% in taxes. I mean, there's no way people can, can sustain their living that way. You know, the, the American Revolution, you know, the taxes, taxation without representation was one of the, the rallying cries. But the taxes were very modest. You're talking three or four <laughs> percent. But it was it was the uh, the principle of the thing of taxing them without representation that they were upset about. But then when you fast forward to the 1820s and Southerners are told uh, we're going to put a close to a 50 percent tax on uh, manufactured goods, all your all your clothing, all your shoes, your blankets, your farm tools, and, and so forth. Uh, in addition to that, your 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 farm business is going to be cut in half because Europeans don't have the money to buy your your tobacco anymore. Uh, you know that's a tremendous amount of plunder compared to what they, they were the American revolutionaries faced. And of course, today you know you can go online and uh, look up the National Taxpayers Union website. And you'll see that the average American works almost until May, you know, late April, just to pay taxes. You know, that's if you if you divide the, all the taxes collected and divide that by national income, it gives you a percentage that's uh, that's you know, more than a third. You know, and it, which means you end up working until uh, in other words, April 27th or something like that is Tax Freedom Day. They call it. You know, it differs every year depending on how the numbers work out. But uh, but yeah, we're we're so we're basically slaves to the state, and and you mentioned may, how Lincoln made slaves of all the states. There's a, an interesting book by a historian named Jeffrey Hummel, and the, the title is "Emancipating Slaves Enslaving Free Men," uh, and the enslaving free men part is what happened because of the war. After the war, you know, all the rest of us became enslaved to the federal government in one way or another after the war. It didn't all happen at once, but it, uh, we're there now. Well, yeah, no, I was bringing that up because I want to make sure that we have um, this information, the books that we're talking about and things like that, so that people will be able to get them uh, when we archive the show. Uh, they can go do their own homework because that's what we that's what we encourage people to do is to learn on their own. We're giving you stuff that you can, you can learn if you don't know, and then uh, giving you the tools where you can go learn it on your own. Now, with, the, with what happened with Lincoln, uh, and, uh, I know, boy, some people will get on to me, but you know, I know a lot of people have heard this stuff about John Wilkes Booth, you know, and stuff, but he's the guy who said six Semper Tyrannis, which is the Virginia motto. Um, and thus always to tyrants. And they realized what Lincoln had done. They realized what he, what he had done to the people. 
not just to the south, but also to the north, too. And there is a whole thing I encourage people. You mentioned Jefferson Davis to read uh, The Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government. Um, you you want to hear it straight from the horse's mouth. There's the guy you want to hear it from uh, because he he paid a, a tremendous price for fighting for liberty. Um, but what happened after Lincoln up until 1913? Because you've got what, about um, 50 years or so there. And we know that at several times the central bank was always a push to come there. You talked about Hamilton at the first, but there were several times in our history that was until they actually they fully got it in measure in uh, in 1913. What what took place in there to bring that bring that to bear? Well, we we Lincoln uh, uh, brought into play more government control of banking. Uh, there was something called the National Currency Acts and the Legal Tender Acts which created the greenback dollar and it imposed a tax on competing currencies like the Dicks that I mentioned earlier. Uh, and so it, it drove the competing currencies out of the market and established a monetary monopoly of the greenback dollar. But we didn't have a bank. We didn't have a national bank during that time. And that was arguably the, uh, one of the most stable, stable monetary systems we, we've had uh, because we were, for most of that period, we're still on a gold standard. Where, where the money was backed by gold, although there were periods where the government would declare a suspension of specie payment. They would, they would allow the banks to not honor their promises to, to give you gold in return for uh, if you wanted to redeem your, your currency. And so that, that, was, and that was a problem, and that created problems. And, uh, but uh, but the, the uh, special interests who wanted a national bank you know, who wanted it to uh, to provide cheap credit for for um, favorable favored businesses and wanted it to allow the banks to lend a lot more money than they had. You see, what we have now, fractional reserve banking, um, the government, the Fed tells banks, well, we have something called the reserve requirement. That means if you if you have uh, say ten million dollars in reserve, the bank, the government will say, well, you're allowed to lend 10 times that amount. <laughs> and actually, after the uh, the virus, the COVID shutdown, the Fed made the reserve requirement zero. You don't, you don't have to hold anything in reserve. So banks are allowed to lend on paper anything, any amount of money, and, and that's okay. They don't have to have anything in reserve. And, and the Fed will just print more money to, to bail them out. And it wasn't always like that. During this period, before the Fed was created, uh, we were still pretty much strictly on the gold standard where where people understood that they wanted their money to be as good as gold. Some banks might have held 50% reserves, some held 75% reserves. And of course, the more gold reserves you had, the more secure the people's money would be. And But the same, the, you always had these the same gang, same, same gang of industrialists and bankers that Hamilton was the, the political water boy for. And then Lincoln became their political water boy. And then by the time you get to the early 20th century, you had a different group of politicians who were willing to be sort of uh, uh, paid political prostitutes for the same gang. Uh, and they finally got their way. Uh, they used the excuse of a, of a recession uh, in the late uh, 19th century to start up a crusade to, uh, for the bank. And you said you're going to have Edward Griffin on it, so I don't want to steal his son on your show. I don't want to steal his thunder. I'm sure he'll talk all about that. And by the way, we're right now I'm sitting in Auburn, Alabama, 
at the Mises Institute, M-I-S-E-S Institute. And, uh, and we are holding a conference in October at Jekyll Island uh, about uh, where they created the Fed. So if, you're, if you're, your listeners and, you're, and you're, 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 can uh, look up M-I-S-E-S.org, Mises.org, the website, they can find out about the Jekyll Island Conference. Um, I think it's the uh, second, week, second weekend in October. Okay. All right. Yeah, we'll do that. And by the way, let me let me just uh, in talking about that, we see we see the problem. Uh, young, you know, Ron Paul in 2012. I mean, he was waking young people up. We're talking in their teens, uh, in their early 20s. Like I haven't seen um, anybody in public service do in my lifetime like that. And one of the things he was doing is he was showing them how you know, what, what the politicians were doing. They were selling them out. They were enslaving them, if you will. And so the obvious question comes, well, what do we do? We can learn this knowledge. What, are, what, are some, what does Mises have? Uh, what are some practical things we can do to drive this back and to fix it the way it needs to be fixed? And what kind of pain is that going to incur? Well, you know, you're you're you have a show. You're you're educating people. Uh, you know, the best we can do for ourselves is educate ourselves as much as we can, and and as many people around us who we can educate also about these things, so that we can make some sense of a person like Ron Paul. So that when the next Ron Paul comes along, uh, we we know what he's talking about, or or she, and we know we know we we can support this person. And we can reach into our pockets, send them money if they're running for a high political office like this, and and no, otherwise uh, you're just going to be bamboozled by the same dog and pony show by the, you know, frickin' frack, the Democrat and Republican candidate who uh, who doesn't talk about the things Ron Paul does. I know a lot of the politicians in in Washington, especially the ones that've been there a long time, deeply resented Ron Paul because he didn't have a billionaire behind him. He didn't have all these rich corporations funding him. He just spoke truth to power, and people sent him tens of millions of dollars in small individual contributions without asking. He didn't even ask them. They called them money bombs, as you as you remember, you know, for his political campaign. And even he wrote a book called End of the Fed, and the title came from, he was invited, I think it was the University of Michigan, and he shows up. And the students spontaneously started chanting, end the Fed. And that didn't come from Ron Paul. They, they had read his, uh, some of his readings about the Fed or maybe listened to his speeches. But that phrase, end the Fed, did not come from Ron. It came from the students at the University I think it was Michigan. And, uh, and so uh, and that, that's an example of the, the influence that we can have, that ideas can have, Tim. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And and matter of fact, it's kind of interesting you say that because speaking of education too, when you bring Ron Paul in, when I was working for Dr. Gary North, that was when he and Ron Paul started together to do the Ron Paul curriculum, which he's a part of. And I think Tom Woods, and there's probably some other people now yes. doing that. And that's oh, that's one Tom of the was, visions. Tom's right downstairs from where I am now. <laughs> okay. That's one of the visions that, that he has is to educate people to, so that it's not hey, I'm just going to tell you this stuff, but I want you to go learn it for yourself. You go see, am I not telling you the truth? And, and one of the things I appreciated about Ron Paul was he didn't change his message for the audience he was in. He, You could count on the same answer coming every time. And it was, I'll tell you, I got tickled so many times. I don't want to get off on Ron Paul too much, but I got tickled so many times where he spanked these candidates just on national TV. And some of them didn't even know they were getting spanked. 
And um, and I remember that uh, Mitt Romney even came and he said, well, I don't know the answer to that, whether that's constant. You have to ask Mr. Constitution. I thought that was a tremendous giveaway. And I wondered why the people didn't latch on to it. But it's <laughs> it's like everything yeah. else. They 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 grasp whatever they're they're fed, whatever they're given. All right. So let's take from uh, the 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 creation of the, the Federal Reserve, uh, 1913. And I've read Ron Paul's book uh, in the Fed. And I remember when he talked about when he was a young man, um, his dad had a coin collection and he wanted to get that coin collection. And so him and his dad negotiated that and he ended up buying it and stuff. And he was talking about the value of the money. And then he fast forwarded to whenever he wrote the book, 2011, 12, somewhere in there. Um, and he says the value of the dollar between 1913 and that time had we had lost like 97 or 98 percent of the value of that dollar. That's just incredible to me uh, of what's going on. But then you start looking at, well, when I was a kid in the 70s, what a car cost then. Now it's like the price of a house uh, to get a, you know, get a car, a decent car. Uh, it's going to come new or something like that. So what happened in between there when we let these guys in? What's going on? What did we do with constitutional money? What, what went on there? Well, the Fed's created in 1913, and it, you know it always takes the government a little while to uh, to get its act together and figure out what to do. But uh, it, it ended up fin- using the Fed to print money to finance uh, uh, at least a quarter of the uh, uh, participation in World War One. You know, a few a few years later, and you know that's one of the things about any government program, but especially war. If you tell people it's gonna, we're going to raise your taxes for a war, they're going to think about that. But if you tell them it's free, it's not going to cost you anything. We're going to print money for the war. They're not going to think too much. Or they're going to think it's free. And so it, it reduced the perceived cost of the war, the financial cost of the war to the American public. And, and so when wars are always less frequent and shorter if they're paid for with taxes than if they're paid for with with uh, counterfeiting and funny money. So we, we had the Fed. It gets us into World War One, And of course, we rang up a debt, uh, borrowed a lot of money to finance uh, that war that was none of our business. And we had no no business getting involved in, in, in it at all, but we did. And so, uh, and, and so, the, so the, the financing of that created a, a bubble in the economy, the stock market bubble. And there was a depression in 1920. And in 1920, the depression of 1920, the first year of it was worse than the Great Depression uh, that occurred about a decade later. But we were still, we still had a lot of people in government who were not of the Franklin D. Roosevelt ilk. And, and they realized that the appropriate thing to do is scale back, you know, cut out, don't, don't expand government, cut back. And so they did little, little or nothing. And the, the, this deep, sharp depression of 1920 lasted only a year, about a year, and we're out of it. And then we had the roaring 20s. So the Fed, uh, by the late 20s, the Fed gets its act together and starts expanding the money supply very rapidly and created uh, the tail end of the roaring 20s, which turned into another bubble, a stock market bubble especially, I think uh, one of the big stocks of the day was RCA. Radio was relatively new. And uh, I don't remember the exact stock price, but it went up from something like 
$8 a share to $800 a share, so an astronomical run-up. And a lot of that was fueled by easy credit created by the Fed. And of course, that created the stock market crash of 1929. And, uh, and so... Uh, uh, and, and so there you have it. That brings us to the, the Great Depression. And, and then during the Great Depression, uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, the first Hoover, and then Franklin Roosevelt responded with massive government intervention. The first time in American history that our government responded to a depression with massive government intervention. Previously, they usually stepped back, cut taxes, cool it with the borrowing, you know, uh, and they didn't have a Fed until 1913, but we did the opposite. And the end result was a depression that basically lasted for 15 years until World War II was over. Well, now, a lot of this can be traced back into some other things, too. Uh, there's uh, some evidence that uh, obviously that Lincoln had Marxists in his cabinet. They, he probably even leaned that way. And we start seeing that come in. And I think this is the whole thing. Uh, you know, when Donald Trump stood before the American people at the State of the Union and says, we'll never be a socialist country. I'm wondering what planet he's on, because we've been that for a long time. Um, and and it's it's destroying us. We think it's enriching us, but it's destroying us. And whether it be the Democrats who do a, um, a domestic policy when they're in power and they really attack the constitutional liberties there, or whether it's the Republicans when they're in power, they just destroy any kind of foreign policy we have with things. And all of it costs us money. And in the in the process, it enslaves us more and more and more. But there's got to be a way out of it. And, you know, we're running up against the clock here. We got about five minutes. Um, what, what's going on now? I mean, we've moved from Franklin Delano Roosevelt with his green with his, with his green new with his new deal. And now we've moved to this thing where we see the, the utter communists coming in using the whole green agenda um, to, in, you know, just take out all the businesses and everything else. They're doing a pretty good job with this. I call it the scamdemic, the plandemic. Um, they're doing a pretty good, and I'm amazed that Americans just roll over to it. It's just amazing to me. What's going on now? What, what's happening here in the last five or 10 years? What are we up against now? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. The, um, the mask is off the Democrat Party. It's the party of communism. Uh, Bernie Sanders is a, is a dangerous right winger compared to some of these people, <laughs> you know, and so you know, and this happened all of a sudden. But 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 then again, it's not so all of a sudden. They've always they've been like this for a very long time. They just think of euphemisms for for communism, like uh, economic democracy or liberation theology, progressivism. They think of all these words for socialism, but but. But now this is all gone. All these euphemisms are gone, and 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 we see they're they're coming right out there. They want to destroy capital. They want to destroy Western civilization. And and uh, you know I'm I'm here at the Mises Institute, and uh, Ludwig von Mises, a famous uh, Austrian economist, who Ron Paul, Ron Paul has always been a big fan of Mises. He wrote a book called Socialism in 1920, and near the end he wrote devoted several chapters to what he calls destructionism, and he said. All socialists of any kind have always, first and foremost, been in favor of what he calls destructionism or destroying the inst existing institutions of, of, of civil society. They're after the family. They're after religion. I just, I just read yesterday that somebody vandalized statues of the Virgin Mary. Uh, they want to destroy capitalism, they, uh, Christianity in general. They want to wipe the slate clean, clean of Western civilization because that's then they think they can 
create their socialist or communist utopia. And this is 1920, Mises was writing about this, and we're seeing just the latest version of the same old Marxian game plan of attacking the institutions that have evolved over the centuries all at once with violence and, uh, and, and replacing them with who knows what. And that's, that's what we're seeing today in a big part of our, our political arena. Yeah, no, I'm I'm actually surprised that uh, of some of the areas where the people have not come out. Now, there have been a lot who have went out to meet these, quote unquote, protesters. They're not protesters if they're destroying property, if they're rioting and looting. That's yeah. that's different than protest. And I see the socialism changing. They change terms so that they make it more palatable for people. And uh, of course, we're seeing now, I mean, they don't come down in my neck of the woods that I've seen uh, because... Uh, the people go out and meet them. <laughs> uh, they'll they'll stop them from doing what they're going to do, and uh, and I think it's a it's a travesty. But that is really what Marx Marxists do. They go in to erase the slate, get rid of dad, get rid of the family, get rid of the 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 center of of of, of religion, which you know in our culture has predominantly been Christianity. That's what we were founded on upon the Bible, uh, and uh, so they want to get rid of these things, and then they want to put. They want to put something new in their own image, which once it's in place, they ain't going to like what they get there. It's going to be a hundred times worse than any of the problems we're having now. They're, they're not going to like it once they get in place. And it's, it's been tried, I don't know how many times throughout history, and it always ends with the same results. Um, governments destroying their people. Um, you get the elitist in power and all of these kinds of things. Uh Dr. D. Lorenzo, you've got this new book, The Problem with Lincoln, The False Virtue of Abraham Lincoln. People can pick that up. It just came out on July the 7th. You guys go and pick that up and at Amazon. We'll have the link in the archive of the show today. And I'm going to give you about 30 seconds here. Tell people where they can find out more about you. Uh, well, I've been a columnist for LouRockwell.com for, uh, for, for years. And, uh, and you mentioned uh, Marxism a minute ago. My, uh, today on LouRockwell.com, I have an article at the top of the page entitled uh, Why the Marxist Left Loves Lincoln. And so you might be interested in reading that uh, about uh, Lincoln's connection with the communists of his day, including Karl Marx himself. Yeah, well, we're going to stir the people up, aren't we, uh, talking about that? I mean, that is <laughs> that is one of Trump's favorite presidents. It's, he's being promoted. Look, my kids love those national treasure movies and I, I just cringed when the guy says, oh, he was one of my favorite. He was my favorite president. I'm just like, ah. uh, it's just people who are ignorant. They, they don't know their history. And uh, and so that's what we want to encourage them to do. Dr. DiLorenzo, thank you for taking your time with us today. We appreciate you very much. Guys, 23 Hours will be back with you. We're going to have David Zuniga. He told me to emphasize that. On, We're going to talk about the grand jury and how we can start to implement that. Till then, see ya. <laughs>